Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week we come to you from Cape May, New Jersey, coming to you from Congress Hall, going back to 1816. 
Actually, the original hotel was built in 1812, then rebuilt in 1816. And what an amazing place this is. What great history here. And what a great feel you have coming down to Cape May, New Jersey. Lots of stuff to talk about in the news before we get to New Jersey. And one in particular, of course, is the utter disarray, the absurdity, the disruption, the stupidity, shall I continue, of the Transportation Security Administration, TSA. Uh, Earlier this week, their head of security was fired. This is after this guy received almost $90,000 in bonuses when the agency failed at a miserable 95% failure rate to detect bombs, explosives, or weapons. And this guy got a bonus. And, of course, we all know how bad the lines are. And if we don't know how bad they are, just go to any airport. Good luck. Let me tell you my story. Uh, just about a week ago, uh, actually 10 days ago, I was going off to, uh, to Sydney, Australia, from Los Angeles. The plane leaves at 11.50 in the evening. Um, by the way, all the Asia and South Pacific flights, with few exceptions, leave Los Angeles after 8 o'clock at night just like all the European flights are leaving after 6 o'clock at night from JFK in New York. There are no great surprises here. Airline schedules are published. But our friends at the TSA are running it like a Woolworths back in 1955, thinking that their store hours are only 9 to 5. They're not staffing for passenger flow. They're not staffing for airline schedules. They're not staffing for anything other than bad old work rules that have no relationship at all to reality. This is not a new problem with the TSA. And, and by the way, I have pre-check, and it doesn't matter. How about that? So let's go back to my experience. I get out to the airport a little bit after 9 o'clock, and the line is outrageous. I have no choice. It's an international flight. We all have to go through security. I get in that line. The line does not move for 20 minutes. I finally go to a supervisor and say, am I in the right line? Because I have TSA pre-check. Of course, it doesn't apply to international flights, which is another stupid thing. I'm either a trusted traveler or I'm not. So what do they do? They put me on the expedited line. I'm in that line for 34 minutes, and it hardly moves. And then by the time I get up to the front to be able to put my bag on the conveyor belt, my bag gets tagged for secondary screening, but there's not enough uh, personnel there to do it. So it sits there for 15 minutes. So now let's do the math. 20 minutes in one line, 34 in the other. Now we're up to 54 minutes. Now, 10 minutes more to wait for them to inspect it, to get a guy to do it, and their machine doesn't work, so we have to go to another machine. Then they take everything out of the bag. Then they have to put everything back in, which I wouldn't let them do. I put it back in. By this time, they're already calling my flight, and now it's about to get even crazier. I race to the plane, and when I get there, they say, no, no, you don't have to race. There are another 40 people who can't get out of that line either. We're going to be delayed. So we wait. I'm then told by the airline folks there that every plane that night at Bradley Terminal has been taking a delay. In fact, they've been taking a delay every night, all due to the stupid lines at the TSA. Now, the TSA is undermanned, understaffed, badly managed, and poorly administered. Other than that, what a great place to work. Now, we're not done yet. So now we take a 20-minute delay. I'm sitting on the plane, and the pilot comes on and says, oh, by the way, we're about to take another 20-minute delay. Why? Because there's still so many people in line that can't get to the plane, and yet their bags have already been loaded onto the plane. That's a security violation. Their bags now have to be found and go be offloaded. So we left about an hour late. Now, the next day when I got to Australia, I went on the radio 
on CBS and reported on this. Guess what happened five minutes later? Someone from the TSA called the station and claimed that my reporting was inaccurate, that they had pulled the tapes, that I'd only been in line, I'd only been in line the, the night before for 34 minutes, which, by the way, is not true. I'd only been in that line. Here's my response. Let me see if I get this straight. You have somebody you employ to watch videotapes of who's online, but you have nobody employed to monitor the lines to make them better? This is nuts. You know, the old adage was, oh, get to the airport early. Get to the airport three hours early. Well, that makes no sense if you have a 7 o'clock in the morning flight, because if you get to the airport three hours early, the TSA hasn't opened their line yet. Oh, no. God forbid they would open a line early. No. They only open up the line at 5. So if you get there at 4 o'clock in the morning, like a lot of people are doing, you're standing in line that is absolutely not moving for at least an hour before then it doesn't move very fast at all. So how did all this happen? Well, my guess is that when the TSA got stuck with that Inspector General's report, where they put in all these mock explosives, weapons, and guns, and bombs that the TSA failed to detect 95% of the time, the TSA's response would be to say, oh my goodness, we better slow things down, as if they couldn't get any slower. So now the TSA is probably still failing 95% of the time, they're just failing more slowly. Now, isn't that special? And then there's the issue of TSA pre-check. You will notice, we reported on this earlier this week on CBS, a huge surge and the number of TSA pre-check applications by people who think that's the answer, that if they just got pre-checked, they wouldn't be in the world's longest line. Really? They might not even be in a line at all. Who says that just having pre-check means the TSA is going to even open a pre-check line? Uh, you know, I was flying recently out of JFK at 6 o'clock in the morning, uh, and huge line, I got the pre-check, no pre-check lines were even open. Nobody there to staff them. So what's the point of spending money to join PreCheck when the TSA doesn't consistently operate it? This is nuts. Now, we're not rocket scientists here. This is basic people management skills, time and motion skills, common sense skills. How about that for a concept? And the TSA, all they did was fire their head of security, so they threw him under the bus. But he was replaced by, guess what? His deputy coming from the same culture. Look, it's not an easy job to do TSA. If I was actually manning those lines, watching those bags go through the conveyor belt, after about the eighth bag, I'd be asking for a price check on aisle nine. It's not easy. I get it. But the fish thinks from the head, and in this case, the head is smelling pretty bad. And, and you know what? We're just at the beginning of summer now. And for those people who have applied for TSA pre-check, the backlog is so bad it could get you 8 to 12 weeks to get an interview. You know what that means? Huh. Happy Labor Day. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Somebody who knows a little bit about that. In fact, he opened up the, one of the first B&Bs here back, I hate to say it, 45 years ago. Uh, Tom, Tom Carroll, in fact, you're basically the bona fide historian now of Cape May. So I, I, I refer to you in terms of, of not just how did Cape May come to be, but how do you keep it going? How do you preserve it? 
That is an ongoing battle that we face on a daily basis. The energy in Cape May definitely flows in the preservation direction. We certainly found years ago that preservation can pay, and nothing encourages people more to restore than if there's a profit in it. So building by building. But there's got to be a story in it, too. Oh, yes, yes. And that's, it's all about storytelling. We definitely have a story to tell. We were one, not the Newport, Rhode Island uh, crowd, but we definitely attracted the lower rich and famous in the 19th century. You mean the accessible rich and famous. The accessible. <laughs> and we were pretty accessible in our center location in the Mid-Atlantic region. You know, the, the first thing that struck me when I first came to Cape May, and, you, and of course, you, you take this for granted, I'm sure, but it, it struck me immediately, all the rocking chairs. You know, everybody's got a porch, and everybody uses it. The porch really was a 19th century architectural addition. Colonial houses, and after the invention of the car, and everybody fled to their patios in the backyard, uh, we have returned to the porch in Cape May. It's where you see and be seen. And people use it. You know, I mean, I get angry when I see a rocking chair, for example, at an airport. And the reason why I get angry at a rocking chair at an airport, because the message it's given you is, you're going to be here a while, <laughs> right? Here, it's you, the exact right message. You want to be here a while. You're, you're happy and comfortable and enjoying the ocean breezes. Now, one of the things that, you know, that hit home for me, of course, was Hurricane Sandy. You guys had your fair share of that. Um, the recovery process for us is still continuing out on Long Island. What about here? Sandy actually went ashore a little bit north of us. Being on the southwesterly side, the winds were coming in behind the storm in a counterclockwise direction. So we really didn't get near as hard of a hit as uh, North Jersey and beyond. You got lucky. We were lucky, and, and we were very thankful to that. When you, know, when you talk about the history of Cape May and even the history of this hotel, um, you, know, you go back to a time when, uh, well, they had a big fire. Many, many big fire, fires. Yeah, and mm -hmm. I'm, a, I'm a volunteer fireman, so I, you know, I, I had to fight a fire earlier this month, you know, where the only way you can fight a fire in a community like this is defensively. You know, you can't save the building that's on fire, you save the buildings around it. That's correct. And that's really what happened here, isn't it? But we built everything so close together. Land was expensive, so wood buildings went up with maybe only five or ten feet in between them. So it was very easy for a fire to go from one to another. In fact, the fire in 1878 did destroy 30 acres in the center Including of town. Including this building. Including this building. Including yeah. all of Congress Hall. So when they rebuilt it, they, they made it out of brick to convince people it's fireproof. But it's, <laughs> it's about as fireproof as the Titanic was unsinkable. Well, the bottom line is it all gets down to zoning because the houses are still pretty close together. They are. They yeah. are. But what's great about it is you know, this is a place. Uh, I got up this morning. I said, you know what? I'm going to go take a walk. And, you know, when you walk, you see everything. And, and it's not when you drive it. you, you got to walk it. And every house has its own distinctive architecture, has its own distinctive feel. But the one thing that I noticed about, about everything is it's very welcoming. You know, it's sort of like we go back to that front porch. We used to, in the 60s, start moving the direction of accommodating the automobile Accommodating the automobile. Accommodating the automobile. Because back then, if a guy couldn't see his car, you know, he was having heartburn. But nowadays, bicycling and walking and horse and carriages and trolley rides are really very, very popular. Many people come to Cape May, they get rid of their car, and for the next three or four days, they don't use it. They don't need it. They don't need it, no. No, it encourages you to actually get out and, and do something else that we've lost the art mm -hmm. of in this country. It's have a conversation. Right. Right? Right. When we come back, I, I want to talk to you about what you do to maintain it, though.
you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger. I'm speaking with Tom Carroll, my, uh, my unofficial or official Cape, Cape May historian. Uh, you've been here how many years? I came to Cape May in 69 with the U.S. Coast Guard. And That's I right. Was, you're a retired captain. Yes, and I was phys ed director at boot camp. That was a very interesting story. Oh, I hate you. <laughs> I, I, I already Now I hate you. <laughs> I've gotten over those years. I haven't. <laughs> uh, so you came here actually with the Coast Guard. There's a big Coast Guard station here. This is where anybody who enlists in the Coast Guard comes for basic training. Yeah. And you you you, uh, you learn you literally learn the ropes here. You do. You have eight miserable weeks, and those kids are very glad to see Cape May in the rearview mirror when they leave boot camp. Now, back in '69, I'm assuming you, you had an 82 footer. Uh, yes, 82 footers. See, I know this. Footers. See, I, yeah. I, I, mm-hmm. you had an 82 footer, and on the back of it, you had a Boston Whaler. Right. Am I right? <laughs> right. Come on, I know that. Oh, wait, I'm, I'm doing all right. Um, and but now, of course, you've got the uh, the the uh, self riding boats, which are amazing. Self-riding surf boats. They yeah. can capsize and right themselves because all the weight's in the bilge. What's amazing to me about those boats is where they test them, because it's got the best name ever up in Oregon. What's it called? Cape, Cape Disappointment. Disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> How'd you like to be told you're going there? Wow. Or Cape Fear, too. I think Cape May is a much pleasant, more pleasant-sounding name. Yeah, who wants to go vacation in Cape <laughs> Disappointment? Right? There's, there's a one-night stand that's going nowhere. How about Point No Point uh, in, in Maryland? That's true. That's true. But part of being here in the Coast Guard allowed you to actually discover Cape May. Yes. Actually, my landlord became one of the first presidents of the Mid-Atlantic Center for the Arts, which saved the Emlyn Physic Estate. So I got recruited at a very early age in life as a preservationist. And then, and then you became, you literally became one because you opened up a and b We opened up the first B&B in town in one location, but then moved it to a gem of a building, an old gentleman's gambling house. Really? Which just had a perfect reputation to attract people. Oh, I'm sure. Talk, talk about storytelling there. You when, could, when, when, you, when you got to that building, what did you find in there? Uh, we knew what was in the building. Tons of Victorian furniture, chandeliers, hardware. We didn't really find any great secrets. And we don't think we found ghosts, but everybody wants to believe in ghosts now, so I guess they're there. So uh, Halloween, you're busy. We're busy. (laughs) (laughs) Do people report seeing them? Yes, every people want to see ghosts, and Cape May has a wild series of ghost tours. Uh, with our more historic uh, tours, we do try to work real history into uh, the ghost tours. All right, well, let's talk about some history here. What, for someone who's never been here before, and I've been here before, but I'm open to hearing it, is the most surprising story you tell them? The thing that they're not expecting to hear. I think probably one of the most surprising stories is the fact that Cape May has saved 600 Victorian buildings without a Rockefeller or National Park Service. It was really all done by the people in Cape May that uh, pulled the ground roots together, put the right people in office, changed the ordinances around. I mean, and you were able to do it with full community support. Well, maybe not 100%, but right. uh, you know, as soon as they started realizing there was money to be made and the season could be a lot longer than just a normal beach community, uh, that that helped a lot. We really have a year-round season now. Well, you see, that's what I, I, I hate the words off-season because I think it's a myth. Uh, I'm one of those guys, and even this goes back to Fire mm-hmm. Island, you know, I'm not a Memorial Day, look, this is Memorial Day weekend, it starts, but I'm not a Memorial Day to Labor Day guy. I'm a March to December guy. Mm-hmm. 
right? And I'm sure you are too. Well, our first years in business, we literally had Memorial Day to Labor Day, and that was it. That was it. And we started attracting bicycle clubs to Cape May to enjoy the quiet season of the year when the roads were empty. That was actually Cape May's first off-season business. Right. And of course, let's not ever underestimate the magical month of the year, September. I mean, my favorite day of the year, you know my favorite day of the year? The Tuesday after Labor Day. Because that's when all the crazies leave. September, October, and even well into November, yeah. in, Indian summer hangs around. Because once the ocean is warm, it keeps the air warm. Now, it's the opposite in the spring. Uh, we are many weeks behind Washington, D.C., Philadelphia. Uh, spring comes late because the ocean doesn't warm up fast. Now, you opened up the first B&B here. How many B&Bs are there in Cape May? We topped out in the 80s and 90s at about 80 B&Bs. 80 80? Wow. What's but, the total population of Cape May? Uh, only about 3,500. And you have over 80 B&B? But we can swell to 60,000 people on a 4th of July weekend. So, as I said, the Tuesday after Labor Day is when you want to come. Uh, but sir, that's a lot of B&Bs. Is there one group now that says, okay, these are our standards. This is what we will do. This is what we won't do. There are B&B organizations within the yeah. town, so, uh, kind of divided between those that are just a guest house and no breakfast and others that are more sophisticated, breakfast, afternoon tea. But everybody tries to keep the bar high. And if you call one in and they can't help you, they're very, very good at helping you find a place that would be very similar in character. Well, it's a community. It keep the business in town. That's the biggest message. Exactly. And you talk to each other. Yes. Well, yes. So if the health inspector visits uh, one in, uh, the, well, hot, let me guess. the hotline goes, goes well. <laughs> that part I got. That's a, he's coming. But, get get but, the cat out of the kitchen. And by the way, sometimes the cat is in the kitchen because that's what Cape May is all about. Sorry, health inspector, but that's the, that's the deal. Right? It's, it's certainly the, uh, the B&B image. And you know what? Maintain that image, would you please? Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go And joining me now, a guy who knows a little bit about it, Curtis Bashaw. How are you, man? I'm well. I mean, I, everywhere I walk in this hotel, I mean, there are stories to be told. Everywhere I walk, I see pictures on the wall that, that make you stop and look and go, oh, wait a minute. You know, I, I, last night I, I looked in the wall in my room, and there are pictures of Benjamin Harrison, right, who turned this into essentially the, uh, the Eastern White House, if you will, right? 1891, it was a summer White House. He brought the offices here when they were putting electricity into the White House in Washington, D.C. So while they were having major renovations, he showed up here on the beach. He had a good summer. I should say he showed up on the shore. That's correct. See, I have to get it right here. I'm in New Jersey, right? Uh, but the history here for 200 years, I mean, this was the place where people went. It was where society went. Um, when I first came here, you know, the thing that struck me, the, the first thing that struck me were the rocking chairs. You know, it was one of those things saying, Oh, I guess you can slow down a little bit, right? People came to slow down. They have. We're the very southern tip of New Jersey, and like a lot of places at the end, Provincetown, Key West, different resorts, There's when you come over that last bridge, there's definitely a sigh of relief and a relaxation that takes over. Now, one of the pictures I saw on the wall was of you. At a very young age, were you washing dishes? What were you doing? Well, I started working here when I was 15. Yeah. 
and uh, did everything from desk clerk to dishwasher to uh, valet, tour guide, uh, chief cook and bottle washer. Uh, all of us pitched in back then. That, that's when the hotel staff still lived in the hotel and have a lot of memories from those early years working here. You know, when you think about travel in America, so much of it is, is corporate, so much of it is chain. You don't see a lot of that in Cape May. Cape May doesn't have any chains. You know, we're the oldest seaside resort in America, and we've been, you know, hosting visitors for over 200 years. This hotel is 200 years old, and we're, you know, the hospitality is authentic. It's simple pleasures, and it's very hands-on. The community is really used to welcoming visitors and integrating them into the fabric of the place. Now, you co-authored a book with Jack Wright, who will be coming to us a little bit later in the show, called Tommy's Folly. It goes back to the guy back in 1816, right? There was a, a young man. Uh, he had been a sheriff in the in the community. Uh, his father was a tavern keeper and the postmaster that owned land right here where we By sit. By the way, I'm convinced that everybody at one point in their life in Cape May was a tavern keeper. I think so. Come there on, were a come lot on, of come bars on. in this town. Oh, you bet. Yeah. Uh, so Thomas Hughes had a vision to build a place where people would come resort to escape the summer heat in Philadelphia. It was the first resort by boat down from Philly, and he built a beautiful big building that would sleep 100 people, which made Which it was huge at the time. Huge at the time. And uh, he called it the big house, but all the neighbors stood with their I'm arms folded. I'm glad they folded. changed that name, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that name has new connotations. Yeah. But the neighbors stood with their arms folded, and they called it Tommy's Folly because they didn't think it would work. And uh, it did. And young Thomas Hughes went on to be elected to Congress in 1828, and the name was changed in honor of that by the second owner, Sam, Samuel Richards, to Congress Hall. In honor of that? Correct. Wow. Then there was a fire. There, you know, Congress Hall has survived uh, numerous pestilences. Uh, hurricanes. Hurricanes, fire, financial distress, downturns. But it has always come back, and I think it's because of its location sitting here on this bluff overlooking the water. You know, and it's not just the bluff overlooking the water. The first thing you notice when you come in, how many fireplaces do you have? Uh, three right now. Yeah, that but work. they're and they're working. They are. Yeah. The hearth is on. Well, you know what? Anytime you walk in there and there's a fireplace working, and it's not a phony fireplace, it's a real one. You got to go. I like this place. Well, thank you. I mean, there's a real genuine uh, hospitality to this building. A lot of people have asked me through the years. Well, it must be haunted. And I'm not a big ghost guy, but but you're going to go with that. I'm going to tell you in the in the in the nicest sense of the word, there is a special haunting to a place that's been making memories for 200 years for people. And you can't help but think back to the nine other owners besides me and what they went through in trying to get certain things accomplished, or all the thousands and thousands of employees, or the hundreds of thousands of guests through the years, and the memories that they've made. It must have given you a, a, a special feeling to go from chief cook and bottle washer to owner. It was. I remember the night. Uh, was it always a dream? When I was 17 years old, we lived in the hotel as staff members. I was walking back. From I read that police report, by the way. The arcade. <laughs> and looked at the building and said it would be really fun to fix it up one day. And it only took me 25 years. And we got it fixed up and reopened in 2002. And it's been going strong ever since. It has. It's come into sort of a new golden age. You know, people love to resort here. There's nothing in the mid-Atlantic region with the beach out the front door with the services that we provide and with the ambiance of a building that still has you know a few slopes in the floors and a patina to it that makes you feel like you're someplace that's venerable and and 
chock full of tradition. I will tell you this, and, and this is not a, a, a funny little sentence. It's true. I mean, when you walk down the hall, the floors creak a little bit. And you know what? It's okay. I mean, it, it basically says you're not the first guy who showed up here and you're in good company. It's true. We had a choice when we did the renovation in 2002. You know, do you gut the building and level the floors? And we opted not to because that patina, you want to feel it. And what we instead did is we buy beds with extra long legs so we can saw them off custom to each room. Are you serious? I'm serious. So that every bed is leveled to its place in the room to deal with the fact that the floors just have a little bit of a slope. Okay, it's haunted. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we're done. It's haunted. (laughs) I love it. You're in bed number five. Yes, it's the one with the extra long legs. Yeah, some rooms have longer legs than others. Right, and late at night the furniture dances, doesn't it? Come on. Uh, not that I've seen. No, not that you've seen. But when we come back, one of the things I want to talk about is it's not just this hotel. You have other partner hotels all over town now uh, and restaurants and a farm. I want to talk, I want to talk about the farm because you, know, you ask kids where food comes from, they tell you the store. No, you order something at one of your restaurants, it's coming from your farm. And uh, that's really interesting stuff. I, I, it happened at dinner last night. I went, wow, I want to know more about that. There you go. Keep that going. This is Flight 372 on SWA. The flight attendant's on board serving you today. Teresa in the middle, David in the back. My name is David, and I'm here to tell you that. Shortly after takeoff, first things first, there's soft drinks and coffee to quench your thirst. But if you want another kind of drink, then just holler. Alcoholic beverages will be $4. If a monster energy drink is your plan, that'll be $3, and you get the whole can. We won't take We've been talking to Curtis Basher, the the owner of uh, Congress Hall, and when we just left off for the break, Curtis, we were talking about, I mean, this is really a community. You know, you, you, Yes, you swell in the summer to 60,000, 70,000 people, but at the end of the day, you're about 3,500 people, right? We are. We're a small town. And yet, the good news about the small town is you, t- you know everybody. Uh, the bad news about a small town is they all know you. <laughs> it's true. Uh, you know, small towns can close in on you, but there's a sweetness to the fact that the you know, everyone's pulling for each other, both in the business community, uh, the nonprofit community. Uh, everyone is connected, and it's it's a great feeling to be part of something and, together. And, and the cool thing about a small town, and I and I live in a small town, is you can always say, I know a guy. Because you do know, you, if there's something going on, you know a guy who can help. It's true. Uh, there have been times here when you get that feeling from the movie Local Hero. Do you remember that? My favorite movie Great of film. all time. David Putnam produced it. Music by Di- Mark Knopfler and Dire Straits. Yep. Burt Lancaster's last movie, Peter Rieger. I could go on and on. Love that movie. If you haven't seen that movie, that's Kate May. We've had experiences. You know, I'll be at this property. You, you'll, I'll be somewhere else for dinner. You hear somebody talking. Everybody knows a guy. Yeah. Or a gal. Yeah. And... Wherever you're going for dinner, you probably know where the food came from. We do here. Uh, you know, there's a long tradition of, of sort of tourism, agriculture, and fishing here in Cape May. Uh, but it goes back generations. Generations. In the 1850s, the owner of Congress Hall was a guy by the name of Walters Miller. His table was renowned because he had a farm in West Cape May and grew most of the food for the hotel. We uh, did that ourselves. We bought a uh, 62 acres in West Cape May in, in 2007. Okay, I got to ask you a question. Yeah. What the hell did you know about farming? Uh, not a lot, but, uh, <laughs> you know, if you're an optimist and an entrepreneur, you think you can do anything, and, and we get started. I can tell you this. I know why farmers are religious people. 
It's either too hot or too cold, too wet, too dry, too arid, too windy, and all you can do is pray about that. Uh, however, however, you're farming. What are you farming? We have over a thousand chickens, so we have fresh eggs every day at our hotels. Uh, we have pork, over 400 pigs. Uh, we harvest about 250 a year that create our own bacon, sausage, scrapple, loin. Ricks. So you're smoking it too. Uh, we do that with a partnership. There's, you know, guidelines you have to do, but yes, we do. Okay. Uh, lots of vegetables, both the t- Jersey tomato is a big feature. Well, yeah, you haven't lived to you had a Jersey tomato. That's true. We have what we call a build your own tomato sandwich at our restaurants in the summertime, and it starts with white bread, mayonnaise, tomato sam- tomatoes, and pepper, and you can add Wait a second. bacon. You had, you had to throw in the white bread? You start with that. You can upgrade to seven grain. You can upgrade to whole wheat. Uh, now you start to talk like an airline. <laughs> okay, you got you build your own tomato sandwich. I love it. But, you know, we have asparagus right now is in season. The strawberries in May are terrific. Uh, So we blow through the entire schedule of vegetables from early spring through spring, summer, and into fall and winter. But you're not just providing for this hotel. You're providing for a number of other partner uh, operations that you have. We do. We have five hotels in the marketplace here in Cape May, the Virginia, the Sandpiper. I had dinner last night at the Virginia. You did. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed it. I did. Uh, So we deliver, you know, 1.5 miles away is our farm and these restaurants are getting food every day. Another. Okay. What did you learn? I got to ask you this. What did you learn about the farm experience about, okay, we need to grow more of this or let's never do that. I learned that every single thing that you want to grow has a pestilence that shows up as soon as your crop shows up. And if you're going to be organic and sustainable, you've got to learn how to manage those pestilences. Uh, we have tackled a lot of projects. Very few have we walked away from. Uh, the list is long that we will eventually get to. But, you know, one of the challenges uh, were sheep. They were a tough one. The p- pigs have been terrific. Uh, asparagus, I love when the pigs are terrific, by the way. Uh, asparagus has a particular beetle that you've got to deal with with some chrysanthemum oil to keep that beetle at bay. Uh, are you winning the battle? We are winning okay, the battle. Okay, just double checking, yes. And, uh, you know, the Jersey tomato, there can be years when there are blights that just show up. But generally speaking, the the produce that we have in southern New Jersey because of the sandy soil and it's well-drained is phenomenal. So this is truly farm to table. It is farm to table. Right. Now, what about seafood? Seafood, we work with partners like Keith Lauderman from uh, Cold Spring Fish. Yeah, he'll be coming uh, on the show a little bit later. Danny too. Cohen from Cape Atlantic. We're the second largest commercial fishing port on the East Coast. So I, I don't think people know that. We are. Dock to dish is something that we also value besides farm to table. Do you ever get involved with, or I should say, do you ever involve your guests or let them go out on the day boats and come back with their own with their own scallops? That would be cool. We haven't yet gotten that choreographed. I, I think but you one of the things we have started to do I would do that by the is way. go out to the oyster beds. Yeah. Our oyster beds have been reconstituted. The Cape May salt is one of the best oysters you will ever eat. And to go out there and watch the oyster harvest is an easy thing to, for us to do with our guests and it And they love it. They love it. I did that in Tasmania. Did you really? the, uh, unreal. Unreal. You put the boots on, you get in. It's pretty it, cool. It's pretty cool. Is there anything you can't source here now? Uh, lemons and limes. Okay. <laughs> They're from a southern climate. I think you can get those pretty easy, though. But it's fun to see this place, because it has a pretty vital year-round economy, uh, and the heritage with the tourism, the agriculture, and the uh, seafood, 
that we're attracting a new generation of what I would call young artisanal entrepreneurs. And it's who are not just here for the season. They're not. Uh, they come and they're starting businesses here because there's a leg up. We've got a great year-round base of business. We're one tank of gas away from 25% of the U.S. population, and this town is full every weekend of the year. And so that is attracting a younger generation to say, this is a great place to set up shop, to be a small beer producer, to, to get into distilling, to uh, open a little shop on the retail mall, a chocolate shop, a uh, men's clothing store. And that that's very encouraging to see sort of those that have been priced out of the Brooklyn experience. They want to be part. I think everybody's been priced out of the they Brooklyn have. experience. They have. It's over. Yeah, it really is. Uh, and so this is an opportunity that we are seeing for the first time people moving to the market because of how healthy our market has become. When people visit this hotel for the first time, chances are, I'm, I'm just going to take a wild guess, they heard about it from somebody else. They just didn't like discover it online. Somebody told them about it. It's word of mouth. But when they get here, what's the biggest surprise to them? I think that people are just struck by how the building brings you in and gives you access in a very welcoming way to adopt a tradition. You know, a lot of families, grandma doesn't have the beach house or the mountain house, and they're spread out more. They live in multiple. So we see gatherings here of families that now have adopted this hotel and Cape May as their summer tradition. You know, Congress Hall is that kind of a place. You know, not to, I mean, to be a little bit funny, other people will just say, I can't believe this is in New Jersey, which begs the question. Well, it's back to the image of Jersey, sure. Which isn't fair. But But it persists. There's a pleasantness here. Uh, that there's there's a an old world charm. You've got the architectural backdrop of the of of the city's architecture. You've got the gas lamps, the narrow streets. You're 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 right on the beach. It's it's charming and dignified in a Charleston way. But yeah. You still have an arcade. You still have the mini golf. You still have those things that make the Jersey Shore the Jersey Shore. Right. And it feels safe and secure, and yet it's just a couple-hour drive from most people in the metropolitan area. And then, of course, if truth be told, late at night, my bed dances and Benjamin Harrison walks down the hall. (laughs) (laughs) If you're not in the boiler room or the ugly mug or one of the taverns around town. Or even then, then you're singing with them there. Exactly. See, you can't escape it. The history stays. And that's what keeps you here. It's the history. We have clearance, Clarence. Roger, Roger. What's our vector, Victor? Now I radio clearance over. That's clearance over. Over. Roger. Huh? The third season of Peter Greenberg's public television series, The Travel Detective, premieres this month. And as in every season, the program was shot all over the world, giving you critical, essential information about everything from understanding frequent flyer miles to how the best tour operators train their guides. While we gear up for season three, we invite you to go to www.trafalgarcontest.com and enter to win the grand prize of a Trafalgar Europe vacation. Or you can always visit our website, petergreenberg.com, for more information. Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. And there's entertainment, if you're lucky. 
And my next guest knows a little bit about that because he's the stage director for the Cape May stage, right? Roy Steinberg, how are you, man? I'm great. Great to be here. But you didn't come from just Cape May. You you did, I mean, I know you did, but the point is you were doing stuff on, on, on television for a long time. I have. I've been working in television and film and in theater, both in New York and L.A., and uh, I was working in soap operas, and as they were going down the tubes... Uh, how, many, how many are left now? One? That's four, actually. Uh, oh, who's yeah. counting? Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I was very thankful, and I am very thankful that I worked on them with so many wonderful people over the years. But a friend of mine sent me an email that said, this sounds like you, and it was the ad for an artistic director at Cape May Stage. And I thought, well, I'll come for a year and see if I like it, and this is my eighth season. I just love being in Cape May. It's such an extraordinary community. So now they're in South Jersey. South Jersey. And, you know, the thing that people think that the Jersey Shore, you know, they're used to seeing. Uh, Nobody calls it the Jersey Shore. They go, we're going to shore. They're going to the shore. We're, right. we're going down to the, we're going right. down shore. Right, exactly. Yeah. Well, I'm embarrassed to say, coming from New York, that uh, I used to call it the beach. So for me, this is still a Oh, new... you can't call it. They don't know, know, they don't know what that you is. Can't do that. Yeah, yeah. No. But the thing, you, know, you were talking about um, you know, having discussions. Yeah. And really, that's really what Cape May Stage is all about. We do plays with the intention that we are, are a catalyst for people to talk about big ideas. I mean, and so our plays are all about fun stuff, but stuff that's going on in our nation, in our, in our state, in, in our community. Okay, give me an example. Well, the first play we're doing is called The Whipping Man. It takes place in 1865, right after the Civil War. Race is a big issue right now in the presidential election. Uh, these two, this, actually what happens is a, a freed, uh, a, a Confederate soldier comes back and meets his two recently freed slaves, and the Confederate soldier happens to be a Jewish Confederate soldier, so the slaves were so, I get, so he's conflicted. He's conflicted, right? Yeah. And not only that, but the slaves are, are celebrating Passover, which is the holiday about <laughs> the Jews leaving Egypt. But that's not even the big thing. I mean, there's a bunch of reveals. Wait, wait, if, if I had walked, excuse me a second, yeah. Roy. If I walked into a room and said, "There's this Jewish Confederate soldier, two slaves celebrating Passover," they'd say, "What are you smoking?" Exactly. Yeah. And uh, I thought, you know, I didn't even know there were Confederate soldiers. I kind of went online thinking maybe this is just some wacky playwright writing this stuff. Turns out there were ten thousand Jewish Confederate soldiers. Uh, and wait, wait, who did they piss off? Well, you know, yeah. it turns out there were the merchants in the, in, in, in the um, South, in the south. Yeah. And, and they were pissed off at the Union for taxes. And uh, there were some very anti-Semitic laws during uh, some of the administrations. Um, Fort Myers in Florida, General Myers was a Confederate general who was Jewish, just as an example. Which explains how many Jews are in Fort Myers. No, I'm not going <laughs> to <laughs> We're going in the wrong direction. But you know, the thing that's so cool yeah. about it, though, is that the guy we've got directing it is from L.A., his friend of mine that I've known for some time, uh, Greg Daniel. And Greg is was uh, he's also an actor. He was on HBO's True Blood. He directed um, uh, Mountaintop for us last year. And he was also an actor for us when we did Master Harold and the Boys. So you treated him so bad that he came back. Exactly. Wow. It's really, it's how really long, cool. How long is your season? Our season goes from May to December. That's great. Yeah. So in, in the heart of winter, you know, when it's, it's cold... Actually, Cape May is an amazing place to visit around Christmas time because it's all filled with you know, all the beautiful Victorian homes all decorated for the holiday. So are you still a New Yorker at all? Oh, yeah. I mean, I go to New York regularly. I have, all my friends are still in, in New York but and you, L.A. as but well. But wait a second. Now you get your friends to come and see you here. Exactly. You never know how many friends you have until you have a beach house. <laughs> <laughs> and so you're taking numbers now. Right. Yeah. But no, because most of your friends who are visiting you here, I would assume, are seeing this for the first time. Yes. And in fact, you know, the wonderful thing, it's really kind of a, a marvelous experience, is that now in my own life, it's kind of coming full circle. People I worked with 20 and 30 years ago 
a good example. Next week, we're um, we're actually um, just just realized we're going to be uh, we're going to be having a, a national playwright symposium, and one of our playwrights is a net guy named Jose Rivera, who I worked with back in the 1980s, and he won the Academy Award uh, for a movie called Motorcycle Diaries. So he's going to be talking with other writers about what it's like to write. So you know what? You, you've turned this into a sort of a mecca. It is. Yeah, it's marvelous. Mecca by the beach at Roy's house. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> What's their biggest surprise when they come here? I think the biggest surprise is that how what an extraordinary, vital, artistic community this is. I mean, we know we have the beach. People knew about that. There's the ocean and there's sure, the, bay. the, the shore. shore. Thank you. Help me. Help me. So we have. Uh, we know there's beautiful bays and oceans and all sorts of historical things. I mean, there's lighthouses and so forth. What people don't always know is the amazing number of of uh, music concerts and um, and lectures that go on and theater. So we do plays that range from The Whipping Man to a very funny play called Sex with Strangers. It's not porn, though it sounds like it. Um, but it gets people in the door. It gets people in the door. Your captain speaking. There is absolutely no cause for alarm. Get your My next guest has focused in on the stuff that we see but may not know, we hear but may not understand. And we should know more about. His name is Richard Crossley. Of course, he's the the photographer, the birder, and the author of this massive book, uh, the Crossley ID Guide to Eastern Birds. And when I say massive book, I mean it's a weapon. This thing is big. How many birds are we talking about? But nearly seven hundred species. Just here, on the eastern on the eastern seaboard. Oh, absolutely. Yep. Okay, I've got to ask the uh, I've got to ask the question. Uh, and and this comes from a guy who grew up on on uh, on Long Island and Fire Island in New York. Um, seagulls. I got to start with seagulls. Um, is there only one species of seagull? Oh, there is no such thing as seagulls. <laughs> Most of the gulls live inland, but uh, we do have a special one. Here. Well, they've adapted that way, haven't they? They've always been that way. Really? So it's just uh, an inappropriate name. But we have laughing gulls here in Cape May. Well, we have several species. Explain. But I love laughing gulls. So they're named after the noise they make, so they laugh. So they're the sound of summer. By the way, you're a birder. Can you make that noise? No, absolutely not. You don't, you, don't, you don't get involved in those competitions. Only if I've had a few to drink, mate. So. <laughs> All right, but laughing gulls are particular to Cape May? No, they're... Uh, Mid-Atlantic is their stronghold, so they live mostly on the East Coast. If you live in Florida or spend the winter in Florida, there's millions of them down here. But they come back here in March. They nick everybody's food. They're, so, very, they're very smart. Oh, they're very smart. And they're very fast. Uh, very fast and very opportunistic. So if you've got a burger on the beach or a, a cookie or something, you better be careful because if you show too much of it, it'll grab it. Well, I have seen once, I've seen it. I, I heard stories about it before, and I never believed it until I saw it once. They actually tried to grab somebody's handbag. They'll take anything. They will. They will. And then if you sit on the shore and watch them, I, I live on a bay, and if you watch them on the bay, you know, they, they fly around and they're, they're, they're sort of frustrated. But, on the, but then what they'll do is they'll, they'll, they'll get a crab. They'll get a crab, and then they'll, be, they'll look for your sun deck, and they'll 
throw it to the ground because they want to crack the shell. I mean, they, they figured out how to do it. Most birds that are successful today have actually learned to adapt to man. The lads, world, the world's largest breeding colony is actually three miles up the road of, of laughing gulls. So there's maybe about... Now, you realize, of course, um, when you have seagulls and you have pigeons, you know what everybody calls them. Rats with wings. Oh, you know, I'm sorry. They do. Peter, you've got to change your show. We've got to get the, your priorities on this I'm just program. saying what other people say. Richard, come on. But the point is, you see the gulls, and in New York City, of course, or in Venice, you see the pigeons... But other than the gulls, we're talking nearly 700 species, you said, so, or more than. So for someone coming to Cape May for the first time, what would be the one you'd say, you got to watch out for this one because this is truly special? Well, I think here Cape May is special for the volume. I mean, the one you may want to look for first is the Cape May warbler because the type specimen was found here, obviously named after Cape May. And I love warblers. So warblers are these really five, six-inch long birds that are just an incredible mosaic of colors, and there's like 40 different types of them. So they create a challenge for identifying them. And particularly in fall and spring as well, they migrate through here in thousands, sometimes tens of thousands. And so um, watching them, watching the spectacle of migration, which is, this is probably the best place in North America. Uh, it's mind-blowing, actually, on good days. Have the migration patterns changed in any way that worry you? The the. The migration patterns have changed slightly, but because of the weather, not because of the number of birds. So back in my day, which was back in the 80s when I first came here, I'm giving away my age a little bit here. What what brought you here the first time? What else? One track mine, mate. Birds, the feathered variety. But you knew knew nothing about Cape May except there were birds here. Oh, I knew it was world famous for birds. And so when I first came here, though, it was 28th of August, 1985. I do remember coming on the bus literally having my nose pushed against the window because driving through Cape May, you get all the beautiful colours, the old Victorian houses. So I'm like, wow, this is not like your typical great birding spot. And then just walking out to the point, the lighthouse, the different types of beaches. But then there's this mosaic of habitats. So you've got swamps, wetlands, beaches, woodlands, fields. So it's basically one-stop shopping. You've got it all in one basically two square miles. A birder's paradise, if you will. Absolutely. It's got everything. And so back then I was 21. So it had both types of birds, you see. It had the non-feathered variety on the beaches, you know. So, you know, in England, uh, young ladies are birds as well. So uh, you could make money here, the nightlife, go birding all day long. Um, So it was utopia. But you say the migration patterns have changed. Well, the weather's changed, yeah, because we don't get the cold fronts. So as a result, the birds are not pushed to the coast like they used to be. Um, Actually, right across the northern hemisphere, you can see similar patterns in Europe as well. In fall, when the birds are migrating, the weather tends to be a lot more mellow, nicer, calm, sunny days. And so you don't get birds pushed to the coast, most tend to just fly straight over the top of us, which is good for the birds, but not for the bird watchers. So it makes your job just a little more challenging. Uh, impossible, I would say. So, uh, But you're still here. Oh, yeah. Why, why wouldn't I be? It's utopia, mate. <laughs> What's the one you haven't seen? Oh, my goodness. How long is your program? Not much longer. <laughs> <laughs> there's lots of them. So uh, there's lots of things I haven't seen. But uh, around here, I've seen pretty much everything. And the one that you would tell me to watch out for other than the warbler? 
uh, it's not the individual birds. Here it's about the spectacle, just the hordes that go through. Watching nature's great spectacles, which is often based on volume, is always way better than individual birds. Hello and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. Now, my next guest has a great story to tell. I mean, he's, a, he's now a historian here, but, but my great, the great story about him is he used to be the pool boy here. He's a cabana boy. And he's laughing. Um, but he has a bigger history than that. He was working for a number of magazines based in New York, somehow found his way down here managing the cabanas, and then decided, you know what? This is much more fun than writing for magazines. I quit. I'm moving to Cape May. Did I get that right, Jack Wright? Hey, it was a pool manager, not the pool boy. Come on now. <laughs> All right, give yourself a promotion, see if I care. So, well, yeah, I mean, it was a little strange. Um, I'd, I'd worked in newspapers and magazines in London. And, of course, that New Jersey, of course, that, that accent is, of course, the New Jersey east, accent. Yeah. I, I tell people it's far east New Jersey. You just keep going and then over the Atlantic yeah. and really eastern New Jersey. Yeah, from Scotland. And I worked in national newspapers in London and then came over to New York, national magazines then. And the corporate world, just getting a little bored with that. Came down, worked as the the, the, the pool boy, as you say. Pool boy, here we go, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And hey, so, it's a tough job. Oh, and now, since you admitted you're from Scotland, your experience here was great. The weather the last week. This is Scotland. Grey skies, as Bill Bryson said, it's like living under a giant Tupperware dish. So you got grey skies, uh, a giant Tupperware dish with lots of rain inside. So this last week has been like yeah, Scotland. But you know what? The bottom line is, you come for the season too, for sure. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But what was it that attracted you to Cape May? What was it that brought you down here? Well, New York. I mean, somebody time, just didn't call you up on the phone and say, hey, pool boy. No. No. It doesn't work like that, does it? Um, New York was feeling a little too, uh, I don't know, it was feeling a little too loud and a little too fast. I guess maybe I was in my late 30s and I thought, I don't really want to keep doing this anymore. Cape May is a beautiful little town. I'd visited here a few times and I felt like doing a Hemingway thing. You know, he went down to Key West, Florida, hung out, right. drank daiquiris, red So these novels. are your blue years. These are the yeah, blue exactly. Years. Just double checking. Okay, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I didn't yeah. realize it at the time. Um, so I thought coming down here would be a good way to recharge my batteries just for the summer. And I figured I would be going back to New York at the end of the summer, but I never did. And you've written a number of books. It's great. Yeah. and the, 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 the book- I mean, there's, there's one book that I'm looking at called Tommy's Folly, which was amazing to me because here we are at Congress Hall. And the the thing that, that, that struck me about the title of the book or the subtitle is... We're now broadcasting today from what is called America's oldest seaside hotel. Mm-hmm. Well, it's America's oldest seaside resort, and it's uh, the first hotel here, so we put two and two together. That makes it the oldest seaside hotel, doesn't it? Yep, it does. And uh, we actually found some research recently that suggests it might be the oldest hotel in the country. Really? hmm Wow. Now, you, if you're going all the way back, that was before the fire. Before the fire, Then yep. they rebuilt. Yep. But there's actually been a few fires. Yeah. Um, the, the wooden buildings didn't last too long, hence this one is now brick. Yeah, exactly. So when you came down here the first time, before the pool boy incident, um, what was it that attracted you, other than the fact that it was a small town, it was a community? Because there are a lot of small towns and a lot of communities. What makes this one special? Well, it has a hardware store. 
You know how many small towns have hardware stores? Not too many. You know, you've got the strip malls that are 10, 12 miles away. What? I feel like... You came down for a hammer? Come exactly, on. Exactly, you know. Um, it, has, it has beautiful beaches, right? There's a lot of beautiful beaches in the Jersey Shore, but those beautiful beaches don't usually, are not usually adjacent to beautiful towns with like a real soul and a real center. And the Victorian architecture here, you know, only San Francisco actually rivals it. So when you put those together, I felt like there's something here. There's substance here. There's an actual town, an actual community, and it's really beautiful. And there's history here. And there's history, you know, not quite as much history as there was where I come from, but there's still a decent amount of history. Uh, and I kind of discovered that research in the book, and it kind of made me feel like, I guess I was falling in love with this place. Didn't realize it right away. And then when it came to thinking about leaving, I didn't want to. You couldn't. I couldn't. For you, though, the biggest surprise in the history, what was the one thing you learned that you had no clue about? Well... You know, I had a, a rough working knowledge of how, I guess, well-known the hotel was, you know, when, when Curtis Bradshaw told me. Well, you of course yeah. you're going to say that. Um, I started researching it. This was, you know, 2002. You know, Al Gore had only entered, you know, invented the internet five years before, remember? <laughs> and we still had the dial-up. took like 20 minutes to get the thing up and running. And even then, there wasn't much on there. But I did find some stuff that just suggested that it really was a hotel not just famous regionally, but a hotel that people from around America had heard of at the time. You know, the society pages and the, some of the big daily regional papers were talking about this hotel in little Cape May, and I realized that Cape May wasn't little back then. Back then, it was the toniest seaside resort in the country. You know, the wealthy industrialists from the north came here. The rich plantation owners from the south came here. The Civil War changed that. Um, but, you know, we had four presidents staying here, and they were actually presidents at the time. You know, well, not retired. You know, last night when I when I came into the hotel, they they told me I was going to room two hundred. I said, okay, great. And then they told me later, oh, I'm in the I'm in the Benjamin Harrison suite. I said, mm-hmm. excuse me, he stayed here, and not just stayed here. I mean, this was the first summer White House. <laughs> you know, was. long before Camp David, Benjamin Harrison. You know, he kind of annexed. Uh, he was trying to annex Hawaii at the time, and he failed to then. But he annexed the bottom lobby and basically had his um, his offices in there and conducted business from the corridor of Congress Hall. Now, that's pretty cool. If Obama came down here for the summer, we'd think that was pretty impressive. Exactly. It would tie up a little bit of traffic. <laughs> it would. It would. The part we would be horrible. <laughs> well, speaking of tying up traffic, I mean, it's one thing to say there are between three and 4,000 people who live here full-time, but in the summer months, you, you explode. 55,000, 60,000 people, yep. It's yeah. a little tougher to get into restaurants in the summer. It is. Even if you're Obama. But if, well, you know what I always like to say? If I go to a hotel and they tell me that the, there's no rooms available, mm-hmm. I say, you know, if the president were showing up tonight, would you have a room for him? And they go, well, well sure. I said, well, listen, I just checked with the White House. He's not coming. I'll take his room. <laughs> That's how you do it. They, yeah, they do, they do tell me that, that whenever you're, every hotel always holds back two or three VIP rooms. Yeah. yeah if you can pull it off, good luck. I, well, you got to just pull that line. <laughs> exactly. You do so in the research of your book, because there are so many stories here that go back because the families are still here. And it's handed down and handed down and handed down. And the, and the preservation of the architecture, mm-hmm. right? That's got to be a struggle for some people because it's always a fight to maintain that preservation and the heritage. Well, it, you know, the funny thing about the fire, you know, the fire, normally when a fire rips through 40 acres of prime real estate beachfront, you think, oh my, that's terrible. And it is a terrible thing, but the Cape May you're looking at now is a result of that fire. Um, those big hotels that came down, um, you know, they weren't in great shape. And the fire basically gave people a blank slate. And these uh, northern industrialists, mainly from Philadelphia, rebuilt. 
and they rebuilt on a much more modest scale. Um, you know, they didn't have these huge hotels that held two or three hundred people. But some of these Italianate villas you see around town, beautiful. Those were all built after the fire. So actually, much smaller, much, much smaller. smaller, and I think in a better scale. So the Cape Bay that we see now is as a result of that fire. So it really was, it really was a quintessential blessing in disguise. Tell me about Exit Zero. Exit Zero. So that see, when I first came here, two thousand two, Curtis Bashaw told me some people call us Exit Zero. I was like, why? Because there's 172 exits on the Garden State Parkway, and this is where it runs out. You drive down, <laughs> and it just runs out. Um, so there wasn't an official exit, but this is exit zero. So I made him some T-shirts for Congress Hall Hotel, which said, meet me at exit zero. And, and they went down pretty well. And so when I was researching the Tommy's Folly book, you know, I came across this old magazine called Pennywise that seemed like a lot of fun. And that inspired me to launch exit zero. Kind of like this uh, started out as a kind of cult publication, you know, people in the know, but it grew really quickly for visitors and locals and uh, turned into this magazine and this kind of, I guess it's a brand, you know, people keep talking about brands these days, but it's it's a brand. And it's also, and it's also online. It's also online and and it it also birthed a couple of retail stores and a restaurant. So people love, I guess they feel it, they're in the Exit Zero club. So basically we're broadcasting from Exit Zero. You're broadcasting from Exit Zero. Unbelievable. Jack Wright, the publisher and editor of Exit Zero and the author of a number of books, including Tommy's Folly and Cool Cape May and a number of others. Where are the wagons? The wagon is too slow. Can't you ride? It's not that he can't ride. How is it you put it home? They're dangerous at both ends and crafty in the middle. Why would I want anything with a mind of its own bobbing about between my legs? And who better to talk to today than, well, he's a senior lieutenant, he's a lifeguard, but not just any lifeguard, not just any senior lieutenant. He's been on the Cape May Beach Patrol for how many years? 32 years. So they haven't found out yet. (laughs) George (laughs) Wright. I've kept a good... uh, Jeff Wright. It's Jeff, yeah, that's quite right. Uh, I've kept a good secret staying around as long as I have. You know, lifeguards, when I was growing up, a lifeguard was a summer job the kids got, then they went to college. But you've, you've made this your life. If it, it takes a special person to turn this into a career, uh, you have to have a wintertime profession that allows you to have uh, the summers off. We have some college professors that do this, numerous school teachers really? uh, that do this. Um, and, and like I alluded to, it just takes a special person to commit to this type of lifestyle. And, you know, when you say lifeguard, uh, that can be misleading because it's not just you up on the tower 24-7 telling the kids to get back off, the, you know, get within the, within the boundaries. You're really an ambassador for the whole city. Yes, we're an ambassador for the whole city. Um, a lot of times we are the front line people uh, that the tourists and locals alike meet down on the beachfront. We have a very unique geographical situation where we are in Cape May, uh, is that we are at the very most southern tip of Cape May. Uh, which and means state what? in New Jersey, which means that we are in uh, close proximity with the Delaware Bay. So we have very strong lateral currents down here controlled by the emptying and the filling uh, 
of the bay. So we have our hands full from a geographical standpoint down here. So in a given summer weekend, you're doing some rescues. We are doing some uh, rescues. We are attending to some lost children. We have minor first aid calls. We have people that have major first aid problems. So Well, you're first responders. We are first responders. We are ambassadors. We are just generally uh, do-gooders out there for the entire community, yes. Wait a minute, I'm talking to a do-gooder? <laughs> well, somebody, um, it, 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 like you alluded to, it's not just somebody sitting on the lifeguard uh, stand in the traditional exactly. sense getting tan. It's somebody out there. Although I want to comment, you got some good color today. Well, <laughs> thanks, although it's been <laughs> tough in this uh, weather, actually. Um, it's being proactive, and it's informing right. people where the best places to swim, where not to swim uh, due to the geographical concerns that we've uh, already alluded to, uh, letting them know where the best place to go at night uh, for a good meal, uh, telling them where it's safe for their children okay. you know, to be. Where do you go for a meal at night? Where's your favorite place? Ooh, I, are we allowed to say yes, that? Yes, you are. Absolutely. Uh, I, I like Oyster Bay. I think from start to finish, Oyster Bay uh, is, is a real good place uh, to go around here for uh, a good meal. All right. And for breakfast? Because lifeguards are all about the breakfast. Uh, breakfast, there's a, you know, a couple different spots. We generally don't, uh, get to go to breakfast because we have our workouts to, uh, attend to before a okay, morning but, meeting. But, but Jeff, when nobody's looking, where do you go for breakfast? Ah, uh, wow. Uncle Bill's is always a nice <laughs> spot to go for the pancakes. <laughs> you know. What's the biggest surprise when people come to Cape May for the first time that they experience that they're not expecting? I think the biggest surprise is the safety aspect of this town and the community and the small town feel that I they mean, look, get. Only 3,000 people, right? So 3,000 in the wintertime is locals, and then it swells to eight to nine times that, depending on where we are in the summer. I think the, the biggest surprise is the friendliness and um, kind nature of the locals here and how they're treated and just a small town atmosphere of being able to get around very easily and and see this community on a bike well having been here for you know for 32 years on this job you know who to call i have a foot in this community and have my my pulse out there i, I could get some things done or, or know who to call depending on what's going on yes you know one of the things that was surprising to me in a very pleasant way is you've got more special surf chairs that are that are basically beach wheelchairs with the overinflated or underinflated but large tires than just about anybody else, right? Yeah, these surf chairs are um, designed specifically. They're made of PVC pipe and have large wheels. That but they can roll on the beach. Be, they can roll on the beach. Yep, they're meant specifically to be uh, taken down on the beach, which allows uh, the handicapped, anybody who's injured, the elderly who may have trouble walking. Anybody who has a mobility sand, issue. Anybody that has a mobility issue is able to uh, frequent our beaches on a very consistent basis and enjoy the recreational aspects that we have. I wish more people would do that. I mean, I, I saw what Disney did with some of their out islands in the Caribbean when their cruise ship gets in there. They actually were one of the first guys to actually get those kind of chairs. It makes such a difference. Accessibility down here for us is a, a, a high priority because it allows people sometimes the first time that they've ever been able to access the beach and to see the expression on their face, it's humbling. It's great. It's great. And I wish more beach communities would do it because people with mobility issues vote with their wallets, too. You know, they they want to spend their money and have a great time. The charge for looking at this pamphlet is three dollars. 
The charge for looking at this pamphlet and putting it back quickly is $4. I always like to say, if you really want to know what's going on, go see the guy with the boats. I mean, go ask the guys who do the work for a living. Because when you go to a restaurant, you know, yes, kids where food comes from, they tell you the store. That's a lie. Not true. It's got to come from somewhere. And if you really want, want to know what's going on, I, I talk to three different kinds of people. I, to, I, I don't talk to the concierges at the hotel. Nope. I talk to the fire department guys, because they've been in everybody's house, everybody's hotel, everybody's restaurant. And I talk to the guys who either own a boat or operate one. And I'm talking to one right now. Keith Lauderman, how are you, man? Good, very good. How many boats are you operating right now? Uh, out of our dock, we're operating uh, 25 right now. Are they all scallop boats? Uh, no, uh, most of them are scallop boats. Though. Right. So when we talk about day boat scallops, that's you. That's us. How's the scallop business doing? Scallop business right now is doing very well. Was there a time? Obviously, there was a time it wasn't. That is correct. When was that? Uh, it was probably the early 90s when we kind of hit rock bottom and the uh, government came in and put a lot of regulations on us and then it started to creep back up again. So there, there was a moratorium almost? Uh, almost, yeah. correct. Now this was started by your grandfather back in 1922. That's, that's correct. So, I mean, how has it changed over the years? Uh, the main change is uh, all the government regulations. <laughs> All right, what can't you do anymore? Uh, we're not allowed to fish whenever we want. We're set on the amount of days we're allowed to fish. Although I will tell you this, I, I spent all my summers on Fire Island, which is the Great South Bay, and they basically clammed that out. They oystered it out. Uh, they lobstered it out. Uh, and so they really had to basically put a, a stop order in to give the bay a chance to build back up. And then came Hurricane Sandy, and that was devastating for us on not just the property loss level, but it breached the inlet. And when it breached the inlet, the water came in at such a speed, it destroyed all the eelgrass where the clams really were hanging out. Yeah. And next, it changed the natural predatory cycle of who ate who. And uh, it's, it's going to be a while before it comes back. So you understand why you had the moratorium. I do. And, you know, we would have we fished uh, scallops completely out if the government hadn't... Uh if the government hadn't uh, stepped in and stopped us. So at least you, you owe them a little bit of thanks for at least keep, keeping your business going. We do. Yeah. Totally. Now, how has Cape May changed? You've been here 61 years. That's that's right. Uh, no, Cape May, uh, to me, like, Cape May really hasn't changed a lot. It's uh, just gotten a little more busier. That's all. Maybe a little more popular than it used to be. People eating a little more scallops. They're eating more seafood. Correct. Now, you also have a restaurant. Yes, I do. Lobster house. Correct. Where's the lobster coming from? Uh, we catch some off here, and then we also bring in a lot from uh, New England. Now, the lobster market last year, at least, was rock bottom, too. I mean, it was it, you could get lobster for, like, nothing. Yeah, I mean, every year it kind of hits when they hit their peak. The it, You know, the price drops pretty good. Because I remember growing up, prices were never dropping on lobster, but they had— why, why, why did that suddenly happen? Uh, there's there's just been a lot of production. That's a very well-managed fishery, and uh, there's a lot of production on it. And are the lobsters different anymore, or are they the same? They're they, the same. They are the same. Lobster's a lobster. But they're different in every country. That's true. Right? Different species. Right, Absolutely. different species. So we're yep. talking Maine lobster here? Yes. 
which you're also getting off the coast here. Correct. Same same lobster. Right. How many pounds? More or less? How many pounds? Per on average, is a lobster out here, other than the giant ones you get? Oh, uh, the average is probably pound and a half. All right. So size. The, right. Yeah. So, but when you're getting up to three and four pounds now. That's getting crazy. Yeah, it is. That's it the is. one you keep on the tank for people to come and watch. It is, or, or eat him on a special day. <laughs> what, what would that special day be? I don't know. When you're, uh, maybe when you're proposing to your lady or uh, some kind of special occasion. <laughs> Birthday. <laughs> so basically, she sees the ring and then she sees the lobster. Yeah, she probably sees the lobster first, though. <laughs> <laughs> the population here hasn't really grown that much, has it? No, it hasn't. No. I mean, do you find that surprising? Uh, no, I don't. I mean, it's, it's a typical shore town, you know? I mean, there's not a lot of people that live here, uh, year round and, and then the, uh, the population swells in the summertime. But I, I would presume your business has changed because it used to be just a very seasonal community. Now people are extending the season. Very much so. Our seasons really, you know, it's extended a lot. For me, I'll see you in September. If you are sitting next to a small child or someone who is acting like a small child, please do us all a favor and put on your mask first. Joining me now, the executive chef of the Rusty Nail, Jimmy Burton. I mean, you just heard the intro, Jimmy. It's made your life a little bit easier, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. It really has. You know, to go out there and pick your own herbs, use them in the pick kitchen. Pick your own pig? What are you talking about? Yeah, that's right. That's true. I can't pick my own pig and cook it. Okay, so when you go out to pick your own pig, there's a great time. Go out and pick your own pig. I mean, what do you, what do you look for in a pig? I've never asked that question. Well, we look for the size of it. If it's the right size, you know, we try to cook them on like 140 pounds on a cooker then you know that's the size that will really be nice and flavorable. Okay. And then you got the eggs. Yeah. Yeah, the eggs we use for breakfast, really nice eggs, you know, farm fresh eggs. It's the best. You can't get nothing better. What do you have on the menu here because of that that you couldn't put on a menu anywhere else? Well, it's everything we got on the menu. It's like even, like, you know, the pulled pork, you know, for the sandwiches, we use them at the restaurant. So a lot of them, the spare ribs, everything's so good that we have on the menu. I mean, just it's just wonderful to have fresh stuff like that. Now, when you're going to do a pig, that's that's slow roasted. That's going to take some time. Yes. Right? What yeah. time do you start in the morning on that? Well, we start like 7 in the morning. To get it on, we the, the day before, we you know season it, rub it, and then we get it on at 7 in the morning and under the cooker where it's charcoal that cooks it. And how long does that take? Good eight to nine hours. Under close supervision. Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> it could burn up if you don't watch it. <laughs> exactly. And and then everything comes from that. So are you smoking anything yourself here these days? I mean, are you smoking the salmon? Are you smoking any of the, uh, any of the beef? You know. Yeah, well, we use mostly the smoked pork for the pork pork sandwiches. And the salmon, we, we do a lot of charbroil and smoke it on our charbroil right in the restaurant. Wow. What's the, I, I always ask chefs this question, so you're no exception. I'm going to ask, what's the one thing you put on the menu here that you thought, people are going to love this, and it tanked? And then what's the one thing you figure, people really want this? Are you serious? And they couldn't get enough of it. Yeah. Well, number one is our fish tacos. No doubt about it. Every It's my, my, it's all. 
grilled, stripped and grilled right from the charbroiler, right onto the taco shell. And one year, I think last year maybe, we sold close to 12,000 12, of uh, fish tacos. And another thing I put on the menu is a nail wrap. It's wrapped in a taco, a taco it's, shell. It's called a what? A nail wrap. It's flounder. You better explain that. Yeah, it's flounder, it's guacamole, it's um, um, cheddar cheese, it's lettuce, it's pico de aisle, and it's wrapped in a taco shell, and it people just go crazy over it. See, to me, you tell me if you disagree now, a flounder is not the most t- flavor flavorful fish. So you're surrounding it with all sorts of fun stuff. Yes. That's, that's what you're really doing there. Yes, we're doing. I know, exactly. And... What about the scallops? Because the scallops are getting right off right off the coast here. Yeah. Oh, I got scallops, and they're beautiful. I mean, we grill them. We season them. We grill them, and we bake them a little bit, and people love them. And you forgot one ingredient. You throw some bacon on there, too, don't you? Yeah, we do. We do. Which some, is coming from the pig. That's right. It all gets back to the pig. <laughs> yeah, it does. The pig it, from the farm. It does. Mm-hmm. Is there something here that you can't get? Not really everything. I mean, we can get locally. I mean, local fish from the farm. Local pig, chicken, eggs, the, the salad that they're growing out there, the herbs. We're going to have our own herb bed to go out there and pick all the herbs. As a chef, I, I can't. That's wonderful. Now, you didn't answer one question for me. What was the one thing you put on the menu that nobody wanted? Well, one thing I put on the menu that they really didn't eat a lot is probably, I would say, maybe... I can't really say. The, yeah, whole menu, can. the whole menu sells. It does. Everything on our menu sells. It's probably, um, I would say, maybe fried calamari. Yeah, we don't sell a lot of that. Because people can get that anywhere. That's that's true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. That's true. All right. See, I got you to tell me. Yeah. I, I had to pull it out of you. But yeah. You know. yeah. All right. So, but if you want everything else, it's it's really coming from only a mile and a half away. You're exactly right. Right. Now, where were you before here? I was... I've been with this company seven years. I came from the lobster loft in Seattle City. I went to Johnson and Wales. Ah, okay. You graduated that? Yes, yeah. back in 80, 80. And I came back here in 82, and I opened up Godmother's Restaurant, Rio Station, all successful restaurants, and now I'm with, with a company. Not bad. Well, bottom line is, you having fun in Cape May? Yeah, I am. Working for this company, it's enjoyable. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. 
Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.